Uh, good morning, church. It's uh, great to see you all. It's great to be able to worship with you. What a privilege that is. And, and there's no better way uh, for us to worship Jesus than through the opening of God's Word. And so if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and open to John chapter 16. For some reason, Rich, my clicker is not doing the job. Is that clicker working, Rich? Because if that clicker is working, then I want that one. That'd be great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Open your Bibles to John chapter 16. If, if you don't have a Bible and you want to grab the one that's right in front of you, uh, you can turn to page 902 in that Bible, and that is where you will find our passage this morning. Uh, while you're turning there, thank you, while you're turning there, uh, we always want you to know uh, that we believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Uh, we believe that this book that we are opening is inerrant in the original manuscripts and then sovereignly preserved for us through the generations so that through the reading of this book and the illumination of his spirit, we, can believe, we believe that we can know God. We can follow him. We can worship him. And, and we believe so much in the sufficiency of Scripture that we don't think that what I'm about to say today really matters at all unless it agrees with what God has said in his word. So we want to collectively be a church that believes it doesn't really matter what I think. What matters is what the Bible says. So what the Bible says needs to become what we think. And, and just so you know, if you come to the conclusion that the Bible is the ultimate authority for your life, that changes everything. So I don't just want you to take my word for it, but I want you to know where we stand. Uh, this is why we need to see God's word for ourselves today in John chapter 16. Every time I click this clicker, it jumps to, I think we're okay now. Okay. Um, we've been going through John 15 through 17 uh, which contains the, the farewell discourse of Jesus. These are the last words of instructions that Jesus gave to his closest followers before heading to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he would be arrested and then later crucified. And, and, and just to be clear, uh, we believe that all of Jesus' words are true and valuable, uh, but it is unique to have a window into this conversation on the last day of Jesus' life. And, and as Jesus shares his heart with the disciples, our desire for this series has been that our hearts would align with Jesus' heart for us, that our hearts would align with Jesus' heart for us, because we want to want what Jesus wants. Because we believe that what he wants for us is better than whatever we think that we want for ourselves. Uh, the, the last part of chapter 15, which we looked at last week, Jesus was warning the disciples about the opposition that they should expect to face as his followers. He says, if they hate me, they're, they're going to hate you. If, if they persecute me, they're, they're, they're going to persecute you. We shouldn't be surprised when we face opposition because we've been chosen out of this world. This, this world isn't our home field anymore. We, we have been connected to the name of Jesus, and we have been given the ultimate helper, as Phil was talking about, the Holy Spirit, not so we can live in a bubble and complain about how bad it is out there, but so we can fulfill our mission of making more and better followers of Jesus, no matter what comes against us. And, and those themes, the, the theme of expecting persecution and receiving the help of the Holy Spirit, just continue right on into chapter 16. Ignore the chapter division. It's, it's really the same theme that we saw last week going right over into this week. Because Jesus doesn't want us to be surprised, and he doesn't want us to be caught off guard. Even in an insecure world, we have some assurances that will enable us to live out our mission. And so we're going we're gonna to jump in to John chapter 16. We're going to read through 
verses 1 through 11 of John 16, and and then we're just going to go back and walk our way through the passage to see what Jesus has for us. This is John 16, 1 through 11. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Yeah, this thing is going to be difficult for me, Rich. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. We can do this. There we go. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning... I know what it says, but I want to make sure you can see it. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. That's John 16, 1 through 11. And I mean, there's, there's, there's so much truth here that has just weighed heavy on my heart. And I, I really hope that this will be helpful to you today. As we walk through these 11 verses, we are going to see Jesus give the disciples three assurances in an insecure world. Three assurances in an insecure world. And his goal for this entire conversation is found right at the beginning of verse 1. Right at the beginning of our passage. I have said all these things to you. Why? To keep you from falling away. He doesn't want his disciples to fall away. He wants them to be faithful. He wants them to accomplish the mission that he's going to give them. And so when you think about that being Jesus' goal, right? What would you expect Jesus to tell his disciples to keep them from falling away, right? Maybe, maybe Jesus is going to tell them about all the blessings that they will experience, right? How eternity is going to be awesome. Maybe he should tell them about all the people that they are going to win to Christ. I have my regular clicker back, and if it works, I'm going to be so excited, okay? So is that what Jesus says? Guys, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be amazing. What does he say to them to keep them from falling away? Oh, this is great. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So the first thing that Jesus assures his disciples about with the desire that they don't fall away is that they will be persecuted. He assures them of the persecution of the faithful, which is not what you would expect him to highlight if his goal is that they're not going to fall away, right? But once again, there is no fine print in the invitation to be a follower of Jesus. He just puts everything up front for us. And Jesus isn't warning the disciples about this so they avoid trouble, but rather so they are ready for the trouble that they are going to get in. And his concern doesn't even seem to be whether they are persecuted. He, he, he just views that as a given. You see that? Like, that's not Jesus' concern. Jesus' concern seems to be how they will respond 
to being persecuted. He wants them to be ready. He wants them to know what is coming. On that day, he wants them to be able to say, yeah, Jesus kind of said this was happening. Like, yep, he said there would be days like this. And so guys, you're going to get kicked out of the synagogues, meaning they're going to be excommunicated from the religious community. You guys are going to be outcasts. And worse yet, most of you will even be killed by people who are so deceived that they think by killing you, they are actually serving God because they don't really know him because they don't know me. Jesus is pretty much previewing the Apostle Paul's testimony prior to coming to Jesus. Right? Paul thought he was serving God by persecuting Christians. But he didn't really know God because he didn't know Jesus. And the apostles were going to be on the receiving end of people like Paul and others who were sincere, but were sincerely blind to the truth. And this is a side note, but if you think that having honest motives is is enough, try telling that to the disciples, the early apostles who were martyred for their faith by people living out their wrong understanding of their own faith. But, But here is the assertion that I would argue serves as the premise for everything that Jesus is sharing here. His, his assumption is that it is better to be persecuted for our faith in Jesus than to abandon our faith in Jesus. It's better to be persecuted for our faith in Jesus than to abandon our faith in Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you, do you believe that? Uh, Jesus wasn't concerned about them being persecuted. He was concerned with their response, which is what I think makes this passage instructive for us. Because while we, praise God, might not be persecuted for our faith, right? That might not be what we experience. What Jesus is talking about in this section is, is, is not entirely relatable necessarily in the United States, at least for now. But even so, the real threat in this passage is the same for us. And church, if we could just get a hold of this, the real threat isn't to our physical safety. To live is Christ and to die is gain, right? We have nothing physically to fear if we are in Christ because true life, true citizenship, true belonging is found in the life to come. This isn't our home field anymore. The real threat is always spiritual, that we would give up the faith that has been passed on to us. And Satan uses a lot more than just persecution to try to accomplish that ultimate goal. And ironically, I think we have seen, just as much as he uses persecution to accomplish that, he uses comfort and complacency to accomplish the same goal, right? We, 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 we're comfortable, right? And we can sort of mind our own business, and, and we can make a few compromises here and there just to stay out of trouble, and maybe we become indifferent to certain things, and before we know it, we look just like the world that we say that we are trying to reach, or we just aren't very alert, to the very real threats that are around us. And so maybe if we've gotten comfortable and complacent, can I just sound one alarm bell for us? Just, just one, there's more. But can I just sound one for us this morning? Uh, we might not be seeing persecution to our church, but we are seeing the attempted ad- indoctrination of our kids. I believe that. I believe that. This world wants our kids. Do you know that? They do. And I watched some of the hearings um, for the social media CEOs in Washington, D.C. this week. Anyone else watch those? Um, wow. 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 Um, these social media companies are targeting our kids. 
And, and they aren't targeting them with messages that say that Jesus loves them and that they're made in the image of God. No, they want our kids to think that science and the Bible don't go together. They want to convince our kids of a sexual ethic that's completely foreign to God's good design to us. They want to redefine truth and love and hate and morality. And, and so it would be easy for, to see this passage and think, persecution, not really relatable to us. But the real danger that Jesus is exposing here, the danger of falling away, is the same today as it was then. And Jesus was preparing his followers to be ready to stand faithfully for him no matter what comes. We can't be complacent and we can't be caught off guard. We are always in a spiritual battle and we need to be ready. We need to be ready. Look, there's so much more that we could say about that. Maybe we should have some conversations afterwards. But look at the middle of verse 4. I, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Uh, it, it might be difficult to see this at first. It, it, it was for me. But in these verses, Jesus is assuring his followers about the glorification of the Son. He's assuring them of his own glorification. Uh, the, these verses confirm for us what we probably should assume about this passage which is this is a highly emotional moment. The disciples are having to process an unbelievably large amount of information, unexpected information, in a very short period of time. If you think about it this way, the first 12 chapters of John's gospel summarize Jesus' entire life and ministry. Right? The first 12 chapters of John cover 33 years of time. Chapters 13 through 19 cover one day. One day. One terrible day. And so, so much is happening in this condensed period of time. It's just information overload for them. Judas is gone. Right? Jesus is talking about what's going to happen to him and how he's not going to be with them anymore and how they're going to be persecuted and even killed one day. And it's just so overwhelming and they can't comprehend all that's going on. And so if you're wondering in this moment, hey, how are the disciples feeling about this? Right? You don't have to wonder, right? Not good is the answer. They're not doing very good. They are just sad, right? They are filled with grief. It's a relatable human response to crisis, overwhelmed by sorrow. Sorrow has filled your heart. We've all been there, right? We've all been there. And when our feelings are overwhelming us, it's hard to see much beyond that. And so what Jesus does for them to help them in this moment is pretty important. He says, you guys are sad because I'm leaving, but you're not thinking about where I'm going. They had asked him back in chapter 14 where he was going, right? That's when Jesus was talking about going to the Father's house and how they know the way. And they're like, no, we don't. We don't know the way. How can we know? And Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So they had had that conversation, but that wasn't on their minds right now because they're just sad, right? And Jesus is leaving. But Jesus had his sights, even in this emotional moment, beyond the cross, right? He had his eyes set on the fact that he is returning to the Father. I'm going back to the Father. He was going to be glorified, seated at the right hand of God, highly exalted, given the name that is above every name. He is the I am. 
Is that supposed to help us when we're sad? Was that supposed to help the sadness of the disciples? Yes. Yes. Maybe not immediately, but ultimately, yes. In fact, I would say it this strongly. If you don't know where Jesus is right now, then it is highly likely your life will be driven by your feelings. This is the best that our world can offer, by the way. Uh, think, think about the American dream. What is it? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of a feeling, right? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of a feeling, a, a life driven by what you hope to one day feel, chasing after what you think will make you happy. And the sadness that we inevitably experience are roadblocks to that ultimate feeling destination we're trying to find. Are are you tracking with me? So without Jesus, we are limited to chasing feelings that we never know if we will find, and along the way, finding feelings that we never wanted to feel. That's life in a broken world. And the claim of the Bible The claim of the gospel is that there is a greater reality than how I feel. There's a greater reality than that. The greatest reality, whether I am happy, sad, tired, energized, joyful, depressed, comfortable, anxious, however you are feeling, above all of that is the reality that the great I am is still on the throne. Above everything that ever has been or ever will be, Jesus is. He is sovereign over all. He is still in control. So no matter what comes, right, no matter how thrown off I feel tomorrow, Jesus has not been thrown off of his throne. He still is. He says, I'm going back to the Father, guys. You're not thinking about that right now because you're sad, but that's what you need to know. I'm returning to the Father. If we are going to be faithful to the mission we have been given, we need to know where Jesus is. We need to know where Jesus is. We need to be assured of the glorification of the Son. But that's not where the encouragement stops in this passage. Look at verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. There's a lot to walk through there. But what Jesus is assuring his followers about is the conviction of the Spirit. The conviction of the Spirit. If we believed verse 7, church, I believe we would live with so much more confidence. It was to our advantage that Jesus went away. Because him leaving meant that the Holy Spirit was coming. Do we believe that? That the Holy Spirit of God in us is better than Jesus next to us. You say, I want to believe that, but Jesus would talk to me if he was next to me. And that would be nice. To which I would say, the Spirit of God speaks through the Word of God. Whether we truly want to hear from God is shown by whether we read his word. He has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. He's not left us on our own. We are not isolated. The spirit of God indwells every follower of Jesus. And my goal is that I don't put my feet on the floor each day without asking the Holy Spirit to guide and empower my steps for that day. 
But Jesus goes on in this passage to describe the mission of the Holy Spirit, or at least a crucial part of it. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So so, so the Holy Spirit does a lot for us. He enables our spiritual gifts for the building up of the church. He enlightens our hearts to understand God's word. He comforts us. He guides us. He unites us as one. He, he, he does a lot for us. There's so much more we could talk about, and I hope that you depend more and more on him every single day. He, he empowers us to fulfill the Great Commission. Jesus told the disciples to go into all the world and to make disciples who will make disciples, but he told them to wait until the count of three. No, he told them to wait until the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost because the power for the mission is not from ourselves. It is from the Holy Spirit who is in us. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit does through us, through our witness, is convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And Jesus further explains all three of those. Why does the world need to be convicted of its sin? Verse 9 says, it's because they do not believe in Jesus. And anything that doesn't proceed from faith is sin. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So when we trust in Jesus, when we trust his word, obedience naturally follows. But when we don't trust in Jesus, when we don't trust his word, we sin. Right? We do things our own way. Sin is first a lack of faith in who Jesus is and what he has said. And all other sins are the fruit of unbelief. That's what is always at the root of our sin. At the root of every single sin is unbelief somewhere. And so Jesus says that the world is going to be convicted of its sin because they don't believe in me. And then he says that the world needs to be convicted concerning righteousness, verse 10, because Jesus is leaving and we won't see him anymore. So Jesus, in his earthly life, demonstrated what true righteousness looks like, and that, honor, and that our own righteousness is not enough to stand before a holy God. And now that he has ascended to the right hand of God, the Spirit of God continues the work of showing the world that they need a righteousness that is outside of themselves. And so then finally, the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment, Jesus says in verse 11, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Bible tells us that we are either under the rule of Satan, the God of this world, or we are under the rule of God. And if you don't like those two options, I'm sorry, but those are the only two that the Bible tells us, right? There's only two options. And so to place your faith in Jesus is to say, Jesus, I want to submit to your kingship instead of the rule of Satan, Right? It's the most important decision that anyone could ever make because the ruler of this world is going to be judged by the actual rule of e- ruler of everything along with all those who are under the ruler of this world. And so the Holy Spirit brings conviction concerning sin and righteousness and judgment and he does so through us, through our witness to the world which is probably why Jesus started this passage by telling the disciples to expect to be what? Persecuted. Because who likes being convicted about these things? Who likes being told that they're wrong? Who likes being told that they are sinful? No one likes that. So you should expect to be persecuted because of the nature of what the Holy Spirit is accomplishing through you. And, and, so, and so here's my understanding. 
I don't believe that we can share Jesus with people without being upfront about the reality of sin, the coming judgment, and the need for Jesus' righteousness instead of our own. That has to be part of our explanation of the gospel to people because people need to know what they need to be saved from, from sin and judgment, and what they need to be saved to, to the righteousness of Jesus. Our salvation doesn't just make us neutral, right? We're not just declared innocent. We're declared righteous before holy God. We need to know what we're being saved from and what we're being saved to. But because we want to be liked, because we don't want to offend anyone, and we don't want to be judgmental, the temptation is to soften the message of the gospel to where it looks nothing like what the Holy Spirit is empowering us to share. Or worse, we look, talk, and act just like the world, so they don't even see any difference anyway. We're afraid to take a stand. There's these areas that we're afraid to speak the truth and love about because we don't want to be labeled phobic in some way, right? We experience this. It's hard for us to know what to do. And we're sort of paralyzed by this because of all the things that our culture is telling us. But if I want the Holy Spirit to work through me, that means he's going to use me to convict people concerning their sin and Jesus' righteousness and the coming judgment. And I'll share a personal story with you just to show how practical this is. A while ago, a woman came to the church office wanting to talk to a pastor. And we had never met before. And through tears, she starts telling me that she's been in a same-sex marriage for years. And now her wife wants to leave and she doesn't know what to do. And she's wondering if she needs to get baptized Like, this is real life, right? What would you say to this woman? What would you say to her in that moment? I'm not saying that what I did was perfect, but what I did is I shared my testimony with her. I shared the gospel uh, using the three circles picture that we learn how to use in our Sunday evening disciple-making disciples training center, which just shares God's good design and, and, and our brokenness and how it's only through Jesus that we can be restored to the right relationship with God that God wants for us. And I gave her a Bible with a bookmark in the Gospel of John and asked her to start reading it. And I invited her to come to church. And I took a deep breath. And I was up front with her that our understanding of God's Word is that part of God's good design is for marriage to be between a man and a woman. And because I believe God's design is for our good, it wouldn't be loving for me to keep that from her. So we would love for you to come, but I think you deserve to know what we believe God's word says because we believe God's word is the very best for you. And so I prayed for her, and she left saying that she needed to read, a, read the Bible. And I've been praying for months that the Holy Spirit would open her eyes to the goodness of God's design so she can experience what God intends for her through faith in Jesus. Right? That's what I'm praying for her. Amen? That's what I want for her to experience. Church, we can't be ashamed of the good news of the gospel. 
right? God's design and the salvation that comes through Jesus back to what he originally intended for us is the best news ever. It is, it is good news. We can't be afraid to allow the Holy Spirit to use us, speaking the truth in love to bring conviction to people's lives. So we can't control how people respond, but we are responsible for following the leading of the Holy Spirit, and he will never lead us to compromise our witness for him. Our world is so desperate for truth, and and they don't even know it, right? That's what they're desperate for, and they don't even know it. And people are so deceived, and it's not loving to keep the truth from them. They need to know that we have all sinned against the holy God, that that we, we think we know better than him. We, we, that, that's, that, that's why we've redefined all these terms. All these things that God designed and defined, we say, nope, we know better than you. We're going to do things our own way. It's sin. And the reality is we aren't good enough on our own. This is why Jesus had to come. He entered into our brokenness that we had chosen for ourselves. And he lived the perfect life that we failed to live. And then he died the death that you and I deserve to die. He took the just punishment for all the sin we committed against him on himself at the cross. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He conquered sin and the grave. He ascended into heaven, and you know where Jesus is? He is seated. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is reigning now, and he will reign forever as king. And you can be part of that eternal kingdom, no matter what you've done, no matter your sin, shame, rebellion, if you come to the end of yourself and place your faith instead in the perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus. If you bring your nothing to him and say, Jesus, I need you. I need you to be the forgiver and king of my life. I want to submit my life to your authority because you know better than I do. If you come to that place, all of your sins will be forgiven. The righteousness of Jesus credited to your formerly guilty account. You become part of the eternal kingdom of God. That's the truth that this world desperately needs to hear. Maybe that's the truth that you desperately needed to hear. Maybe you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus and I want you to hear the good news, the good news that there is a better king and if you submit your life to him, it's the best, it's the best news ever, now and forever. And in order to live out that mission, we're going to get called some names, right? We're we're going to get labeled in ways that we don't appreciate. We're going to have family members that probably aren't happy with us. We might have to give up some opportunities along the way because we are unwilling to compromise our witness. But we do so knowing where Jesus is. And we do so knowing what the Holy Spirit came to do. And we believe that the mission of the Spirit is greater than the threats of the world. Don't we, church? If the Spirit came to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, then we need to be about the mission of the Spirit. The mission of the Spirit is greater than the threats of the world. And if it came down to it, I would rather be persecuted for my faith in Jesus than abandon my faith in Jesus. Are you with me? Are you with me? Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word. And God, it's so hard. It's so hard because we're told all these messages and we don't want to be labeled as hateful and we we don't want people to think that we're judgmental and all these things. But I pray that we'd care more about what you think. And I pray that we would believe that the good news you've given us is actually good news. That your design is what is actually best for people. That the salvation that you offer through Jesus is the only way that we can experience a right relationship with you. And I pray that if there's anyone here today and they've never placed their faith in Jesus, 
I pray that if they have questions, they're not sure what they believe, I pray that they would know that this is a place where they can ask their questions, and we would love to share with them from your word uh, the truth that you have for all of us. I pray that no matter what the cost, we would believe that you are better. You are better than everything that the world has to offer us. And I pray that we'd be faithful to the mission that the Holy Spirit has empowered us to complete. I pray all these things, uh, asking for your grace and for your mercy and for your love to be shown through us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.